This is a song we've sang a few times here before, so uh, we get to this last chorus. Um, if you know the words, it's, it's good to sing along and have some other voices here. <laughs> May that be true in each and every one of our lives, that he is the one that we bow before. I must say, it is always an honor to stand in this pulpit, and uh, I so enjoy having the opportunity to preach. I would encourage you again to be in prayer for our pastor, as uh, he's still uh, away and just enjoying some well-deserved rest time uh, with his wife, celebrating their wedding anniversary, 30 years, 30 years. Praise the Lord. I, I praise the Lord and I thank the Lord every day for Pastor and Miss Charity. But I know he told me personally uh, just the other day, just said, please let everybody know just how much we miss them. Please let everybody know just how much we want to be here. Uh, I know that he loves all of you so much. All right, if you have your Bibles there, in, you're in Colossians chapter 1. Go there with me. Go there with me. Colossians chapter number 1 is where our scripture is this morning. Colossians chapter number 1. 
We read verses 9 through 14. Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. Let's go ahead and reread it just one more time. The Bible says in verse 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord and all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made, made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Responsibility. It's fun, and it's not. Because I'll tell you, responsibility is one of those things that we can often enjoy, but also not enjoy. I'll give you an example of, of, for me, having the opportunity to preach this main service. It is, is an extremely exciting opportunity for me. I, I love being up here in this pulpit. I love preaching. But I'll tell you what, it's also nerve-wracking as the days begin to get closer and closer and you're, you're writing your message and you're, you're kind of sweating it out like, oh man, should I put this illustration? Well, I have time for this. And you're trying to edit and get everything ready. Responsibility is something that can be fun and also not fun. Now, we talked this morning in Sunday school about how God has certain expectations of us. There are certain guidelines that he gives us. There are certain things that that he desires for us to do. Now, with those expectations often come responsibility. Now, so we want to know that, okay, if God has a plan for our life, if God has things in our life that he desires for us to do, there are probably some responsibilities that we as the church are going to have. So this morning, I've entitled my message, The Responsibility of the Church. The Responsibility of the Church. Sometimes we often say the the phrase, well, do your best and let God do the rest. And I believe that's very true, that God desires for us to do our best. And once we've done our best, you know, then God will work and guide through all of those things. But what are the things that God wants us to do our best in? Now, I see there are three characteristics of our life that God desires for us to have, and I see three responsibilities that go with them. So let's look at first the responsibility of a dedicated life. The responsibility of a dedicated life. Now, it's very interesting seeing the way in which Paul speaks to the Colossians here. Because Paul speaks to the Colossians in a way that is probably familiar to very many of you, because Paul kind of speaks to the Colossians almost in a way in which a pastor would perhaps speak to his congregation. But here's the interesting thing. Paul wasn't these people's pastor. Well, yeah, well, Pastor Parker, he probably started the church and then handed it off to somebody else. No, actually, most theologians agree that Paul probably never visited Colossae. Paul probably never start, didn't start the church in Colossae. Paul probably never even visited the city. So why is he speaking to these people as if he is their pastor? Well, I've heard some theologians refer to Paul as the the indirect founder. In other words, Paul was in other cities and Paul reached uh, certain people. In fact, the Bible talks to us here about, uh, earlier in the chapter, about who the, the pastor and probably the founder of the Colossian church was. But okay, well, okay, I get it. So, so Paul is here and he's writing a letter to a church that, that he didn't start. So wait, wait, wait. But Paul, Paul had started a bunch of other churches. So why would he take time to write a letter to a church that wasn't one of his, one of his own? Well, we know this epistle, Colossians, is what we call one of what we call the prison epistles. It was written during Paul's one of Paul's stints in prison. And it was most likely that Epaphras, who we see here, if you were to read the earlier portions of the chapter, Epaphras likely came to Paul desiring for him to invest in his people. And you see, what Paul was concerned with here was not, well, listen, Epaphras, this sounds all great, but I've got my own churches to worry about. I've got these churches that I ought to prioritize. And I've got, listen, I didn't start that church, therefore I don't care. No, what Paul did was he stepped back for a second and he simply said, you know what, my, my number one priority is the cause of Christ going forward. That was his priority. So Paul said, you know what, Epaphras, I would be happy to invest into your congregation. It would be similar to almost like a guest speaker coming in as we would know it today. 
Somebody who is perhaps from an out, somebody who has great wisdom, somebody who perhaps has been on the mission field or in the pastorate for several years, who we bring in to, to help invest into our congregation. And you know, I would venture to say that before we get into really the purpose of the dedicated life, that all of our mindsets ought to be as Paul's was, that regardless of whether, you know, oh, well, this wasn't one of my churches. Oh, well, this wasn't really my thing that I did. No, no, no. Paul's number one priority was, I want the cause of Christ to go forward. And before we get into the dedicated life, my sincere hope is that every single person in this room would have that mindset. Because there are some things about the dedicated life that are a little uncomfortable. There are some things that we may not like. Some things that we would prefer not to do. But if we have the mindset of, you know what? I want the cause of Christ to go forward. Suddenly that little bit of discomfort, it doesn't seem seem so big anymore. So what is the dedicated life? So what what exactly does Paul encourage these people to do? What does he say to them? Well, first thing he does is he notices, you, you kind of notice earlier in the chapter that he knows their primary teacher. This man, uh, I've mentioned him already, his name is Epiphus. Epiphus was uh, the pastor of the church at Colossae, as we would know it today. And Paul calls Epiphus a fellow servant. Now, if you look through the beginning of the chapter, let's go ahead and just read verses 1 through 8 here real quick. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Jesus Christ and the love and of the love which ye have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel which has come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringing forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. As ye have also learned of Epiphus, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared even unto us your love in the Spirit. So Paul calls Epiphus a fellow servant. It's clear that Paul had a, a sense of familiarity with Epiphus and, and kind of what he stood for, what his beliefs were. And so it would be fair for us to say that Paul seems to understand that the people at Colossae, he seems to almost say, you know what, you know the basics. He says in verse number four, we've heard of your faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, so you've come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it seems that he seems to know that I know what Epiphys is teaching. I have a general idea. So you know what, you know the basics. And I would venture to say that's probably the case for most people in this room. You know the basics. You know you're supposed to read your Bible. You know you're supposed to spend time in prayer. You know you're supposed to be in church when the doors are open. So then what is Paul saying to these people? If Paul is sitting here and saying, okay, you know the basics, but what is he saying? Paul essentially says this, okay, you know, now grow. You know, now grow. So you've got the basics. You've got it all down. Great. How are you doing? Paul makes it pretty clear through the first few verses that these people have the basics down, but now he encourages them to grow in their knowledge of wisdom and spiritual understanding. And like I said, this is probably the case with all of us, where, again, we know the basics, but the answer is every day. Look at, look at verse number 9. Look at verse number 9. Look at the second part. And to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So growing in wisdom and spiritual understanding. Paul's desire, as he says, he says it quite bluntly. I want you to grow in your wisdom and I want you to grow in your spiritual understanding. Is this something that is a mindset? As we mentioned earlier, every single day. Is this something that we go into each day saying, God, I want to grow in my wisdom. I want to grow in my spiritual understanding. Help me to know you more. Now, you might be sitting there. You might be saying, well, Pastor Parker, how on earth do I do that? How do I grow in my wisdom? How do I I grow in my spiritual understanding? Well, as I've mentioned, to, I've mentioned before, I'm a basketball coach. So let me, let me kind of put it in, in simplified basketball terms. Uh, there's a lot that someone can do to get better at basketball. 
They can do you know, dribbling drills, they can do shooting drills, they can do all sorts of different stuff to simulate situations. But the number one way that somebody can get better at basketball is to get this, it's to play basketball. The bottom line is the best way for somebody to get better at basketball or at any sport, quite honestly, is to play that sport. Because it is one thing for us to sit for us to sit there and kind of go through the drill and get the good form and good technique down and all that stuff. It is another thing entirely to be in a game speed situation where you're making split second decisions and you have to read and react to all these different situations. And so here's what I'm here's what I'm advocating for. Do you need wisdom? Get in the Bible. Do you need spiritual understanding? Get involved in serving. Get involved in serving. The best way to grow in the Christian life is to live the Christian life. It's to simply go day by day and say, okay, the Bible says to not lie. So I'm not going to lie. The Bible says that I ought to tell others about Jesus. So you know what? I'm going to start with my close friend. And I'm going to do my best to tell them about Jesus. The best thing that we can do in the Christian life is jump in head first. It's the best thing we can do. Sometimes we've, we've heard of, you know, throwing somebody in the deep end, if you will. Now, we're not, you know, if you're still growing and things like that, we're, we're not asking you to stand up here and preach a 45-minute sermon. But you know what? Wherever you're at, grow. Wherever you're at, just determine each and every day that, you know what, at the end of today, I'm going to be closer, I'm going to be better, I'm going to, be, uh, I'm going to have more knowledge of Christ than I did this morning. That's my goal. And for some of you, that might mean diving into a deep doctrinal issue. And for some of you, that might just mean saying, you know what, I'm going to spend 15 minutes instead of 10 minutes with my devotions this morning. There's nothing wrong with either side. Wherever you are at, grow. You know, one of the things that's most interesting, we were talking just a second ago about serving. You know, you don't have to, again, we've, we, I just said jump in the deep end, but you know you don't have to jump in the deep end in order to serve? Well, pastor, I can't, I don't think I have the Bible knowledge to teach a Sunday school class. Then help with one. Well, Pastor Parker, I can't teach junior church. Then volunteer to be a helper. Well, Pastor Parker, I'm not good with, I'm not good with words. That's okay. Talk to somebody like Pastor Brian. Ask him how you can get involved. We've got got stuff where you don't got to talk. We've got stuff that does, just because you're not in front of people, just because you're not being some, preparing some sort of presentation doesn't mean you're not serving. I've, I've had people help me shovel snow. We've had, we've had spring cleanup where some of the biggest blessings I've seen is where people are just coming with leaf blowers and raking leaves. As we said this morning in Sunday school, just because it's small in your eyes doesn't mean it's small in God's eyes. So do you want to grow in your wisdom and spiritual understanding? Get involved. Get involved. Spend a little bit more time in the Bible. Spend a little bit more time, you know, go out of your, or maybe it's just a simple act of kindness for somebody else. Just because it's not directly sanctioned by somebody here at the church doesn't mean you can't, you know, I, I'll tell you one of the biggest blessings, I love food. All right, one of the biggest blessings I got this week was on Wednesday, was on Wednesday evening, Lauren Ruby walked up and handed me one of the best bag of chocolate chip cookies I've ever had. I am all for that kind of service. Amen. All right. Sometimes it's simple stuff like that. Sometimes it's writing somebody a note. Hey, I prayed for you. We can all serve in some capacity in some way. It might even be as simple as smiling at somebody. You ever been having a bad day and it seems like everybody else around you is grumpy too? Man, that smile even can make a difference. But here's the thing. Once we have this wisdom, so now we've, we've jumped into serving. We, we've spent more time in our Bible. We've spent more time, you know, serving others and growing and doing all these things. There is another responsibility that comes with that. 
I'm sure many of you have heard the famous movie quote, with great power comes great responsibility. Now, for some of you, I could throw a reference on that and you wouldn't know it. You wouldn't know it's not from the book of Proverbs. (laughs) But I would also venture to say that with great knowledge comes great responsibility. See, sometimes we get this idea that ignorance is bliss. You know what, Pastor, you know, I'd love to grow in my knowledge of wisdom and understanding, but, you know, I, we don't want to grow because, again, ignorance is bliss. We get this idea that if, well, if I don't know that it's wrong, I can't feel guilty for doing it. So I'd rather just not know that it's wrong, and then I can do it guilt-free. I remember when I was working at a fast food place when I was in college, I was working the closing shift, and uh, one of the managers, we had, we had just finished up, and he, he took some of the fries out of there and uh, threw it in a container, and he said, hey, you want to take some fries home? We had some fries left over, so I said, sure, sure, not a problem. And then he looked at me, and he said, yeah, just don't tell anybody, because then it's on me. And I went, oh, why'd you have to say that? Because <laughs> now I can't take them. I'm going to feel guilty for every single fry I eat out of this container now. If you wouldn't have said that, I wouldn't have felt guilty at all. (sighs) Sometimes we get the idea that ignorance is bliss, but we know what the reality of ignorance is? Ignorance is walking down a road full of traps and holes and pits and not being aware of where those traps are. That's what ignorance is. Part of the reason that our world struggles so much today is because, again, exactly what I just said, they are in darkness, so they're walking down the road and they can't see where the traps are. They can't see that this path is going to lead them somewhere where they don't want it to. And that's why we need the light. And once we have this knowledge, the whole point is that we'll take it and that we'll do something with it. We'll put it into action. We will, we will continually grow in our wisdom and spiritual understanding. Because what we tend to do sometimes is when with ignorance, you know, we say ignorance is bliss, all this stuff. What we have to realize is that God didn't write the Bible to make himself look good. God didn't write the Bible because he thought it was a cool idea. God wrote the Bible for your benefit. That's the reality. God didn't need this. God didn't need the Bible to to know what to do. But he knew we would. He knew we would need guidelines. He knew knew we would need boundaries. Because you see, look at at verse number, number 10. See, once we have, the whole point of gaining this knowledge is as verse number 10 says, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful. And every good work. So the point of gaining this knowledge and wisdom and spiritual understanding is this. We grow. We grow in our knowledge. We grow in our wisdom. We grow in our spiritual understanding. And then we begin to put it into action. When we begin to put it into action, we do what I guess we could say is planting seeds. After we begin to continue to work and, and cultivate an uh, a atmosphere of growth in our lives, those begin to grow. And they bring to, as, begin to, as the Bible says here, bring forth fruit. The Bible was written on our, for our benefit so that we could be, as it says here, fruitful. And here's the cool part. Fruit has multiple forms. There's an example of perhaps the fruit of the Spirit. I know that's something that all of us would desire to have. The fruit of the Spirit when you talk about things like love and joy and peace. Things in our life that we desire to have so that we can be you know, a patient person, a kind person, a loving person. Man, I I know one thing. We need some peace in times like right now. And so the fruits of the Spirit are one of the things that comes as a result of building this knowledge, of jumping in with serving, of continuing to grow, and then the fruits begin to come, and suddenly we begin to see, oh, wow. This is great. This is great. Why, Why didn't I do this sooner? But here's the thing, what about the other fruit? The other fruit, what about the souls of men? When we, talk about, when we talk about bringing forth fruit, a lot of times we use it in this context when we talk about leading others to Christ. Man, wouldn't you love it if 
perhaps that unsaved aunt or uncle, perhaps an even unsaved parent, were here sitting in church with you right now? Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you love for that close friend or coworker who you care about very deeply, wouldn't you love it if they were sitting in the chair next to you right now? Wouldn't you love it if you could, again, serve alongside them, perhaps here at the church or blessing others? Because when we begin to grow in our knowledge and spirit, in our wisdom and spiritual understanding, fruit begins to come. The fruits of the Spirit begin to flow out of our life. Others begin to take notice. And suddenly, it's just a snowball effect. You know, one of the, one of the coolest things to me is seeing, I remember as a, as a kid in college being around, getting a chance to be around some of the, the pastors of these mega churches. You wonder, you know, how, man, how did, how did they grow their church so much? I remember getting a chance to go to lunch with Dr. R.B. Ouellette one time over at uh, Bridgeport Baptist Church. He's now, he's now retired. But I remember him walking up. I remember our, our teachers used to always tell us, they said, you know, guys, these guys witness everywhere they go. And I thought, there's no way. Like, I get it. They've got the joy of Jesus, you know, and things, that, things like that. But there's no way these guys really witness everywhere they go. It's, it's so awkward. It feels weird, you know. We went to Cracker Barrel, and I watched Dr. Arbulet walk right up to the waitress and go, and go, uh, young lady, we'll take, we'll take a table for five people. She goes, okay, great. He goes, young lady, do you know what grace is? Just went right into it. He goes, she goes, well, no. He goes, grace is when God gives us something that we don't deserve. She said, oh, well, that sounds great. He went straight into the gospel. Right there, at the hostess stand. I remember seeing that and just going, oh, my goodness. That is so cool. That this guy literally like can't go anywhere without trying to tell somebody about Jesus. It is awesome when the fruits of the Spirit begin to grow and develop in your life. And then it's almost like kind of like what Peter and Paul said in the book of Acts. Peter, uh, I'm sorry, I believe it was Peter and John said in the book of Acts. We can't but speak of the things which we have seen and heard. We've been with Jesus. How can we not tell you about it? Do you have any idea how awesome Jesus is? He's like so awesome. You know, I mean, I've always compared it to this, that if perhaps today you were to go home and perhaps find a lottery ticket had blown onto your doorstep and so you pick it up out of curiosity and you kind of go, okay. You look it up online and you find out that you won the billion dollar jackpot. I would venture to say that I don't think you could keep that news in. I'd venture to say that you probably wouldn't look at it and go, oh, what do you know? They match. Cool. I'm a billionaire. No, I imagine that probably most, if not all of us, would be going, Woo! What am I going to buy first? All right, let's see here. Oh, man. Hey, hey, hey tell you what. Tell, hey, Dad. Hey, Dad, tell you what. You want a brand new house? I got gotcha. you. You know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to hold it in. We'd be so excited. Well, my friend, you've won something much greater than the billion-dollar jackpot. You've won something so far greater than anything that money could ever buy. Jesus, the almighty king and the creator of the universe, wants a relationship with you. He wants to talk with you. He wants to, every single day, hear about how your day went. He wants to help your children. He wants to help your grandchildren. He wants to hear about everything that you went through. And guess what? He wants to have a relationship with your friends, too. Jesus wants to be a part of your friend group. I don't know about you, but I'd want to be a part of Jesus' friend group. Some friend groups are pretty exclusive. I think Jesus would be, he'd be up there, man. And Jesus wants to be a part of your friend group. That's what he wants. He wants to be there in the conversation. And that, that's why this growing and our spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's why it's so important. Because when you begin to grow and the fruit begins to show, then naturally it just, just flows. And I didn't intend for that to rhyme, but it did. <laughs> but it's when we begin to grow like that that the fruit grows, others see it, and suddenly... 
Suddenly, we can't believe how much we're witnessing. Suddenly, we can't believe, man, I, I saw three people saved this week. Three people that I've been praying for for years. Because when Jesus gets in, we just, we can't but speak of what Jesus has done for us. Hey, friend, let me tell you, I was, my, my sins were, had me filthy, but Jesus has washed me white as snow, and he can do the same for you. It's just, it's just so awesome. But you see, here's the thing. The dedicated life, it's hard. It's hard. It's not comfortable. And while Jesus brings such amazing joy into our life, if we're truly being honest, there are definitely parts of the Christian life that can be very, very difficult. Specifically, tent in the growing process. Many of you may remember when you were a teenager and you were going through growing pains. I went through a lot of those. <laughs> but, so if the Christian life is hard, then we need to understand, number two, the responsibility of the dependent life. The responsibility of the dependent life. Because here's the thing, the Christian life is hard, but God doesn't expect you to do it on your own. I remember when I was a teenager, we had a, a teen rally, very similar to one we had here this summer, and I remember the evangelist, who was a, a different evangelist than the one we had here, but he worked for the, the same group. Remember he stood up and he began to tell us a story about how he was at another church. He said, I was at another church doing a teen rally, and I remember the youth pastor, he stood up and he said, now young people, I want you to understand that the Christian life is hard. It's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, but it's always going to be worth it. He said something along those lines, and he said, and I remember after that youth pastor was finished, I stood up and I said, well, thank you. Thank you, brother so-and-so, and I looked at him and I said, young people, I'm going to be honest with you. The Christian life is not hard. And as a now youth pastor, I can picture that youth pastor's jaw hitting the floor. Um, but he said, young people, the Christian life is not hard. He said, the Christian life is impossible. What? He sat there and told a group of teenagers that the Christian life was impossible. What was he saying? Was he saying, well, better throw in the towel, better give up? He's saying, no, listen, the Christian life is impossible to live on your own. It is impossible for us to love people the way in which Christ desires for us to love them without him. It is impossible for us to forgive people the way in which God commands us to forgive people without him. It is impossible for us to have the love, joy, and lasting peace that God brings without God. It is not possible. So if we are going to have a dedicated life, we need to understand that a dedicated life must be a dependent life. It must be. It has to be. That same evangelist, he wrote a book, and the book was entitled Zero Out of One Hundred. In that same teen rally, he asked us the question one time. He said, listen, he said, if you had to give me a ratio of what the Christian life was, what, would, what do you think it would be? He said, do you think it would be 50-50? Maybe 70-30? Maybe, maybe, maybe we even go as high as, you know what, 90-10. 90% on God's side and, and 10% on mine. He said, guys, the Christian life is none of those. It's 0-100. That's what it is. It is us every single day fully relying on God and his strength. That's what it is. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 11. It says, strengthened with all might. With, according to whose? Whose? His glorious power. Unto all patience and longsuffering and joyfulness. The Christian life is impossible, at least for you. And that's why God says, come to me. Because see, here's the thing. Sometimes we get this idea that when we surrender to God, that it sends God into a panic. Like, like we get this idea that like God's happy that we surrendered, but like now he's like, okay, now I gotta, okay, um, um, so let me pull a little bit of grace from this person. Uh, I'm gonna have to be a little, little bit scarcer with my mercy over here. And uh, let me just get, here, give me a minute to get the materials I need for you. No, my friend, let me tell you this. 
God already has the grace and mercy and strength and courage that you need to live the life he's called you to live. He already has it ready. It's there, it's waiting for you. It's just a matter of whether or not we will come to him and ask him for it. It's just a matter of whether or not we will come to him and rely on him for it. Because you see, again, as the Bible says, our, it is a 0-100 type of thing. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything of ourselves, but our sufficiency, our ability to even meet the bare minimum is of God. I want you to grasp with me probably one of, the most, so, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn. The, turn to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter number 1. 2 Peter chapter number 1. This has to be, it was, it was, this was the very first passage I ever preached a full-length message on. And I'll tell you, it is one of my absolute favorite passages in the Bible. And I, I want you guys to see it. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Look at verse number 3. Actually, you know, we'll start in verse number 1. We'll start in verse number 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I love these next two verses. According as his divine power hath given, us, given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, we can be like Jesus, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. I remember one of the most convicting things that I ever heard was they said, if you choose to not follow God's plan for your life, if you say, you know what, God, I don't, I don't want to go that direction. I don't want to do that. Remember, this was so convicting for me to hear. He said, you're still going to be counted, held accountable for the grace that God had ready for you. You're going to get to heaven one day, and God's going to look at you, and he's going to say, listen, I called you to the mission field. You know what? I had, I had the grace, the knowledge, the strength, the courage that you needed right here. But you didn't trust me. It's not a matter of whether or not God can sustain you. That's not the question. It's not a matter of whether or not God can lead you and, and physically sustain you throughout the path that he has laid out for your life. It is a, just a simple question of whether or not we as Christians will throw up the white flag and say, God, I'm done doing it on my own. You take the wheel. Don't let me touch it. I don't want to touch it. I'm going to be tempted to touch it. God, don't let me touch it. <laughs> it's not a matter of whether or not God will sustain us if we surrender. It's a matter of if we'll surrender. That's the question. It's a tough thing to come to grips with. That I have to be dependent on someone else. Let's be honest, I don't think any one of us likes, sometimes we don't like being dependent on someone else. You know, I, I know there's been plenty of times in my life where I've been, I've been doing something and my wife's gone, are, are you sure you're okay? Yep. <clears throat> Fine. <laughs> my thighs are burning and my, my legs hurt and I'm probably going to pass out as soon as I set this down, but I'm fine. We don't like to be dependent on other people. But let me tell you, there's no greater person that you could be dependent upon. There is no person who can sustain you like Christ can. There is no person who has unlimited power and grace and majesty like God does. Oh, I assure you. Oh, I assure you, you can trust him. I assure you, you take that leap and God will catch you every time. I don't think there's a person in this room. I, I, if we could go around this room and talk to people who say, you know what, I've, I've, I've served God with my life, and I, I'd love to ask him, has Jesus ever failed you? Not once. One of the coolest things was 
when I was in college, a lot of my teachers were retired pastors. They were men who had been in the pastorate and had perhaps sensed God calling them to help invest in future pastors. And so many of them would just tell you. I remember our church, they were doing this. And, and let me tell you, every single time I needed God to come through, he did. He'll never fail you. But here's the question. Preacher, why go through the trouble? Why? Why on earth should I, I work up the discipline that it takes to live the dedicated life? Why should I fight so hard to maintain the dependent life? Why should I do all of these things? Because my friend, you are living, if you are saved this morning, the delivered life. I see lastly the responsibility of the delivered life. Why bother? Because friend, he's already done so much for you. Do you realize if we had been given nothing else in this life but the gift of salvation, it would have already been far more than we ever deserved. That's a sobering thought. Because sometimes we get mad at God when the finances get a little tight. Sometimes we get mad at God when, when something doesn't go our way. Until we step back and we realize, holy cow, God, you've already given me far more than I deserved. God, I've, I've got a roof over my head. I've got food on my plate. Why pursue after God? Because my friend, he already came running after you. I've said this before, but I think this is a powerful thought. We have to come to grips with the fact that God has never once in his life been forced to do anything. So that means every single thing that God has done for you is because he wanted to. So let's step back and let's think about some of the things. What has God done for us? God didn't have to create you, but he did. God didn't have to give you a family, but he did. God didn't have to put food on your plate, but he did. God didn't have to put a roof over your head, but he did. God didn't have to hear and answer your prayers, but he does. God didn't have to have a relationship with you. He didn't have to give you his word. He didn't have to give you a body of believers designed to encourage you, but he does. God doesn't have to sustain you every day, but he does. How about this? God didn't have to pursue you to the uttermost. He didn't have to come down, live a perfect life for 30 years. He didn't have to be falsely accused. He didn't have to have nails driven through his hands and feet. He didn't have to have a crown of thorns beaten onto his brow. He didn't have to be mocked and spit upon and absolutely cruelly beaten for something that was not his. But he did. Because he loved you. One of the things I, I always say when I, whenever I'm giving a a gospel presentation to a group of teens. I always say this, you know, isn't it weird to think about, well, if Jesus was God, couldn't Jesus have stopped it at any moment? Yeah, he could have. It wasn't like when Jesus had those nails put through his hands, it wasn't like, well, I'm helpless now, guess I gotta go through with that. That wasn't what happened. And it wasn't like when Jesus was here on earth when the Pharisees were falsely accusing him and when the Pharisees were trying to get him irritated and, and tangled up in, in meaningless questions. It wasn't like Jesus had to go, man, I can't wait for these 30 years to be up. Oh no, he could have left at any moment. Could have snapped his fingers when it all been over. Jesus had to choose to be here every moment that he was on earth. And he didn't have to but he did. So why should I live the dedicated life? Why should I live the dependent life? Why should I live my life for Jesus? Why should I get these disciplines in place? Because my friend, he loves you so much. 
So much so that he desires to guide you through this life. So much so that he wants you to see the pitfalls and the traps of this life. And he wants you to steer clear of them. My friend, he loves you so much that he pursued you even to the point of death. And now he just says, hey, if you'll follow me, I'll take care of everything. So this morning, I just want to ask the question. Are you living the dedicated life? Or maybe the better question is, are you living the dependent life? Because you can't live the dedicated life without living a dependent life. Or perhaps that's your struggle here this morning. Maybe you're, you're trying to live the dedicated life, but you're trying to do it without living the dependent life. Maybe you say, you know what, preacher, I, I want to live the dedicated life, but you know what, preacher, I, I need to take care of business with God. I need, to, I, need to, I need to wave the white flag. I need to surrender. I need to trust in him, not 90-10, not 85-15, Preacher, I need to be 0-100 right now. Or maybe you're in here this morning and you're not living the delivered life. Maybe this morning you're in here and you don't know for sure that if you died today that you'd be on your way to heaven. Say, preacher, I I don't know if I'm living the delivered life. I don't know if I've ever asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and to save me and to take me to heaven when I die. But whatever it is this morning, whether it's a struggle with the dedicated life, maybe it's a struggle with the dependent life, or maybe you need to get it settled that you're living the delivered life. Whatever it is today, would you, would you take care of it? Let's all stand with our, our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Let me end by asking that question. Are you living the delivered life? Do you know for sure that you're on your way to heaven? The Bible says it's a very simple way in which you can know. The Bible talks about how sin is something, anything that I think, say, or do that breaks God's law, that goes against what the Bible says. And the Bible says that we've all sinned. We've all done things that have broken God's law, and the penalty for that sin is eternal separation and torture and a horrible horrible place known as hell but the bible says that god loved us so much as we said in the message today that he didn't desire for us to go there but god knew the only way for us to go to heaven was for somebody to pay for the punishment of our sin and so what god did was he sent his son down jesus to live a perfect life and to die paying the price for our sin and now he offers us a free gift known as forgiveness where because of what Jesus did for us, dying in our place, paying the price that we could not. The Bible says if we'll come to God and we'll ask Him to forgive us of our sins, of the wrong things in which we've done, and we'll put our trust in what Jesus did for us, not in good deeds, not in coming to church, but if we'll put our trust in what Jesus did for us, that we can know that we know that we're on our way to heaven. Now maybe you're in here this morning and maybe you say, you know what, preacher, I already know that I've done that. I already know that I've put my trust in Jesus. I already know that I've trusted him and I know, I know for a fact that I'm on my way to heaven. If that's you, would you raise your hand as a testimony here this morning? Thank you, you can put your hands down. But maybe you're in here this morning and maybe you couldn't raise your hand. Maybe you don't know for sure that you're on your way to heaven. Friend, we'd love to show you today. And so with everybody's heads bowed and everybody's eyes closed, what I'm going to do is I just want to ask this. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you, not in any way. But maybe you're in here this morning and you say, Preacher, I I don't know for sure that I'm on my way to heaven. Like I said, I'm not going to call you out, but I I would just like to pray for you. If that's you, you say, preacher, I don't know for sure that I'm on my way to heaven. Would you just lift your hand right now? I'm not going to call you out or embarrass you. 
Christian, are you struggling with one of these three today? Struggling to live the dedicated life? Maybe you need to rededicate. Sometimes it's a decision you have to make again. Are you struggling with the dependent life? Preacher, I I just, I I hold on. I want to do it myself. I, I struggle. Whatever it is, would you take care of business with God? Maybe it's down here at the altar. Maybe it's right here, right there at your seat. But whatever God has spoken to your heart about, would you let him work in your life? Maybe you're in here and you're not saved. Friend, we'd love to show you how you can make that decision today. If you come down here to the front, we'll have one of our, one of our workers show you how you can make that decision today. We'll have a man with a man, a woman with a woman. But whatever it is that God has spoken to your heart, would you respond?